O Christmas tree, O Christmas tree, how faithfully you blossom, not only green in summer's heat, but also winter's snow and sleet. O Christmas tree, O Christmas tree, how faithfully you blossom. O Christmas tree, O Christmas tree, with what delight I see you when winter days are dark and drear, you bring us hope for all the year. O Christmas tree, O Christmas tree, with what delight I see you. Well, in spite of picking a couple of carols uh, this morning, I decided uh, not to put that one in uh, because, let's face it, it's pretty weird. (laughs) Indeed, it's even weirder if you um, you know its history, for not only was a Christmas tree uh, penned originally way before Christmas trees were even a thing, but the song was first written by a rather melancholic 16th century German young man. For the German man in question, or so the story goes, had just found out that his bride-to-be fancied another boy, and hence not knowing who to trust anymore, this, this lovesick German Romeo decided that if anyone was dependable now, it was the tree in his backyard, the Tenenbaum, the faithful German fir tree. His fiancée was unfaithful, But the evergreen was faithfully still blossoming. His fiancée made his days now dark and drear. But this fir tree brought him hope for next year. His fiancée was no longer a delight to see. And so why not sing a song about a tree? Now, I'm no expert, and I haven't been around here very long. But O Christmas Tree, O Christmas Tree, really does seem to bear all the hallmarks of a country music classic. But, you know, the carol would not only be apt for a country music radio station, but also for the passage before us this morning. For here in the writings of the prophet Isaiah, uh, we read a passage not only full of references to trees, I don't know if you noticed that, but also a passage about a young man who doesn't know who to trust anymore. Now, the indecisive young man in question is not from Germany and from the 1700s AD, but rather from from Israel and from the 700s BC. And the indecisive young man's name, as you can see from verse 1, is Ahaz. And Ahaz was a boy who had to work out very quickly who he could trust. For if we were around about five or six years from this event, and, and bear with me on the history we would have seen Ahaz, his grandfather, on the throne, and Ahaz, his grandfather, King Uzziah, was a good king. For Uzziah trusted God's word, Uzziah trusted in the faithful promises of God, and particularly in God's faithful promise of a king in David's line forever. Accordingly, Despite the fact that God's people were now a divided people, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south, that the people of Jerusalem under King Uzziah were enjoying a peace that hadn't been seen since the days of King David himself. But then everything changed. Like a storm on the horizon, the prophet Isaiah saw it coming, for chapter 6 ominously begins, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You see, massive changes were afoot for Ahaz. In the few years that followed, from 735 BC to 741 BC, between these chapters 6 and 7, Ahaz moves from this carefree school kid to crown prince. And then Ahaz watches as worldly forces rise up, Syria and Israel to the north and Assyria to the south. 
And then at the height of all this warmongering, with little Judah kind of sandwiched between these world powers, aged just 20 years old, Ahaz's father Jotham also dies. Such that at the start of chapter 7, Ahaz, this college kid, is king in Jerusalem. And what happens right at the start of his reign? Well, verse 1 tells us, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. Now, for many of you here this morning, all that, all that history and all that geography may be, may be very foreign indeed to you. But can you begin to feel what Ahaz feels? As this 20-year-old peeks through his, his college room blinds in verse 2. For there before King Ahaz, outside the walls of Jerusalem, scattered like, like thousands of sheep on the hills, is not just one snarling army, but two. Syria and Israel, their very own cousins, combined forces to besiege Jerusalem and to end the royal line of David if Ahaz does not sign an anti-Assyrian alliance. Verse 5, they devised evil and said, let us go up to Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tebal as king. But for Ahaz, this was not just a college game of risk. This is real life. Who could Ahaz trust anymore? Well, in God's mercy, there's an answer for that. For in verse 3, there was a knock at the door as God's prophet Isaiah is sent to this young king. And essentially, Isaiah says to Ahaz, which tree will you trust? First question for Ahaz that morning. First question for us this morning. Which tree will you trust? Which tree will you trust? What's Isaiah talking about? Well, as I wasn't talking about any German fir tree, uh, he wasn't about to break forth into a Christmas tree, a Christmas tree. Uh, rather, the, the first trees that the Isaiah speaks of here are Rezin and Pekah, the kings of Syria and Israel. For did you notice the, the horticultural way in which Isaiah describes them? Verse 4, he says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps. Which superpowers was he not to be feared? Which metaphorical trees was Ahaz not to trust? Subpoint one, the smoldering stumps, the fleeting plans of sinful kings. The smoldering stumps, the fleeting plans of sinful kings. Isaiah paints a picture here. A picture of two smoldering stumps, or perhaps better translation, two smoking sticks. Two sticks which are still hot and therefore must be handled with care, verse 4, and yet two sticks which now lie next to the fire pit, sticks which were once orange but now are just a smoky gray. And so can you see the point that Isaiah is making? Yes, their plans are evil and they are to be dealt with with caution, but their plans which stand against God's are not to be worried over, or worse, trusted in. These wicked plans were, were like cigarette butts. These plans were, were here today and gone tomorrow. Their plans were just smoldering sticks. And why? Well, because the kings that made these plans were smoldering sticks themselves. A direct word of the Lord comes in verse 7. Look with me. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand... 
and it shall not come to pass. For, verse 8, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin, and within 65 years, Ephraim, that's Israel, will be shattered from being a people, and because, verse 9, because the head of Ephraim, Israel, is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. Can you see? These sinful plans were plans of just one generation because they were made by kings of just one generation. Indeed, God is at pains to highlight that here. God says these plans have not been headed up in my city and in Jerusalem. These plans have not been headed up by my king and David's line. Rather, the head of Syria's Damascus, a city with no promises, and Rezin, a king with no pedigree, and the head of Israel is Samaria, a city with no promises, and Pekah, a king with no pedigree. Indeed, Pekah's dad, Ramaliah, was a mere army captain. That's why Pekah's lineage is, is highlighted again and again and again throughout this section. And hence, Pekah's military rant, which was essentially fall in line with my sinful plans, lest I terminate God's plans for the house of David are akin to me when I was back home last week writing a rather aggressive letter to Buckingham Palace from my parents' little village in Cambridgeshire and telling the Queen to obey my plans lest I end the House of Windsor. What would the Queen do? What would she do when she saw my name and my parents' address on the envelope? Well, no doubt she would have a good laugh with Prince Charles. She'd say, ha, ha, ha. These promises were, were made in a new home, in an unknown village, by a boy of a civil servant. He's from the house of Worsley, not the house of Windsor. All joking aside, can you see? that They, they, are, they are plans of a sinful king, whose reign has been given no promises in the past, and so no permanence for the future. And so their present rebellion against the Lord's king shall be as fleeting as their very lives Verse 8, Ephraim will be shattered in 65 years, just a lifetime. Indeed, even now as these kings fail to break down the walls of Jerusalem, verse 2, their plans are already turning to ashen gray like the very hair on their heads. Accordingly, friends, with the history books in our hands here, it's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to see why these kings' plans should not be trusted and why Ahaz need not fear in his day. And yet, my Christian brother and sister, I wonder how we who have God's promises look upon the sinful plans of the fleeting kings of our day. When you and I, like Ahaz, open the curtains in the morning and see all that stands against God outside our door, as we look out at uh, sinful plans which seem to just ruin everything, when we look out at the old alliance of those two kings of this age, the world and the devil, as we see that their seemingly formidable campaigns, as we hear of evil treaties that they demand that we sign, when we often feel besieged by the world with all its prevailing beliefs and behaviors which, which stand against God's promises, when we picture Satan prowling around the walls of our lives, and here is alluring promises, the peace he offers, if only we would submit to sin and stop living as the royal people of God that we are. My Christian friends, do you ever consider 
the sinful plans of such kings, the plans of this world, the plans of the devil, through the lens of time and through this smoldering stump imagery. Friends, I do not seek to deny the brutishness of the armies that may stand before you this day, but I do wonder if some of us have forgotten their brevity. For sinful plans of the world and Satan, which may burn against us for a bit, and every generation faces new plans from the world with their ever-changing sinful philosophies that they say that we must sign, and, and every Christian generation faces new plans of Satan with his ever-changing weapons of lust and pride and anger and gossip that he says we must succumb to. And such plans to, to make us give up on God's promises are not to be ignored or handled without care, verse 4. They are sticks that may scold, but friends, like Ahaz, we are to remember that such plans only last a maximum of 65 years, just a lifetime. For the sinful plans of this world and the devil, which may burn bright orange in the fire of night, in a few hours will just be a pile of gray sticks. For most of us, in 65 years' time, the world and the devil will have no power over us. Indeed, even now, the world and the devil are smoldering sticks, and we should see their plans as just the same. And so as a result, practically, you and I who have the, the, the promise, faithful plans of God, we're not to trust the worldly powers of 2021. We're not to side with a sinful generation that, that perhaps seems very scary. We're not to crown the gods of this age because they are only fleeting kings. Verse 1, we're not to fear nor are we to let our hearts be faint. For sub-point one, the sinful plans of fleeting kings are just smoldering stumps, just smoldering stumps. And so, what was the tree that Ahaz was to trust? Well, Ahaz was to trust that, that God's faithful promises would stand and that the descendants of King David, like him, will be saved and stay on God's throne. But returning to our story, because Ahaz was clearly still very worried and was still struggling to trust God's plans, Isaiah returns to him again in verse 10. And there God tells Isaiah very kindly to ask for a sign, a sign that will show God's faithfulness. Indeed, the sign he's to ask for should be miraculous, something outside of the natural world. For verse 11, let it be as deep as Sheol, place of the dead. Let it be as, as high as heaven, the place of the eternal. Essentially, God, in his marvelous kindness, seeking to kindle the faith of the weak, says, I see that you're very tempted to trust the laws of this world, and so ask me to break the laws of this world for a miracle or give you confidence in my promise to say that the line of King David to which you belong will stand and that the sinful plans of these kings shall not last. Well, I wonder what miracle you might have asked for. Because when it comes to Ahaz, rather unexcitingly, he asks for no sign. And surrounded by sin, Ahaz will not stop and, and stare at a supernatural sign and so remind himself that, that God will save. Instead, Ahaz will spend all his days, either verse 2, staring out the window, numbed by the plans of these fleeting kings, or, verse 3, frantically checking the water supply to see if there's enough water in the upper pool to get him through this siege. 
It is exactly what the immature believer does when they see a sinful world rise up against them. That they flip between an anxiety that causes them to do nothing and a self-assurance that causes them to run around madly. And so when it comes to the possibility of stopping and making time to stare at God's sign and then to confidently walk on in the saving promises of God, Ahaz blows it. He knows that if he lets God in, that God will be in control. And so Ahaz fobs Isaiah off with some pseudo-spirituality in verse 12. Well, I mustn't put God to the test. And Isaiah is utterly wearied by this lack of trust. And he's something very subtle and very serious happens at the end of verse 13. For Isaiah then says to the king, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Did you catch that? Isaiah knows that the house of David no longer trusts God. Ahaz is only tethered to God's promises by position, but he, but he clearly does not trust God personally. In short, Ahaz's God is not Isaiah's God. And so what happens next in this royal drama? We might expect Isaiah to storm out of the palace and for Ahaz to keep looking out into the hills with no sign of God's faithfulness to save. But in God's unremitting kindness, a sign of salvation to embolden Ahaz is given anyway. And so in verse 14, we get some of the most famous words in the whole of the Old Testament. The Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The sign for Ahaz it is the sign of a son or, or perhaps a seed. A seed that shall not be natural and of man, but, but a seed that shall be supernatural and of God. For this supernatural seed will be planted in a virgin and the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and this supernatural seed will be a sign that God was with them and that God would save them. Which tree should Ahaz trust? Subpoint two, the supernatural seed, the faithful plans for a saving king. The supernatural seed that the faithful plans for a saving king. Now, many theologians and many commentators speculate on who that supernatural son or seed could be. Much ink has been spilt and probably much time at seminary wasted on pondering exactly who Isaiah was to behold right there and then as Isaiah spoke to him. Was this son a seed of Isaiah, a current son or another son, even though Isaiah's wife was clearly not a virgin? Or was this son, the seed of Ahaz, the next king in line, even though Hezekiah had already been born? Well, the best explanation, I think, is that this supernatural seed then, at the time, was a metaphor for all those who were truly royal then. The sign, I think, is a sign of a remnant in God's city who supernaturally trusted when all around them looked bleak. After all, Jerusalem, particularly in Isaiah, is often depicted as a virgin. And so it is as if God is saying that through the pains of childbirth, these sufferings that will come to Jerusalem, a child of God will be born. A faithful remnant of God's people will be conceived out of this crisis 
And they will be a supernatural sign to Ahaz. Ahaz will be looking out at worldly kings to save him. And behold, a remnant in the city of Jerusalem will be looking up at him, trusting God's plan of a saving king. Ahaz will behold the truly royal people of God, those who would not stare at fleeting kings and fear, but those who are holy, who did not succumb to the sinful plans of this world, but knew that God would save them and knew that God would be with them. And Ahaz's very own son, the good king Hezekiah, would be one of those people. And this remnant, this trusting few, that this royal family line would be a sign to an unbelieving king Ahaz in his day that he should trust the promises of God to save too. However, there is, as I hope is very, very obvious indeed, a second and an ultimate way in which this prophetic sign of a son or a seed is fulfilled. For out of that holy remnant, that that trusting royal line will come one seed, will come one son so trusting, so holy, that he will literally be Emmanuel, God with us. For as Isaiah chapter 6 verse 13 promises, a tenth, a, a remnant of faithful Judah will remain though it be burnt, and like an oak its stump shall remain when it is felled, and from there shall come the holy seed or son. Friends, for those who lived 700 years after Ahaz, they knew who this sign ultimately pointed to. And the historian Matthew is the first to spell it all out. For turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament. For for there in Matthew chapter 1 that you looked at together last week, we read that verse 1, Jesus was the ultimate son of King David. And that verse 9, that that Jesus was the promised royal line of King Ahaz. And that verse 18, Jesus was literally born of a virgin. And that verse 20, Jesus was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so verse 21, Jesus would be the ultimate saving king amid all the fleeting kings of the day. He would save his people from their sins. For verse 22, all this, all that is in this first chapter of the New Testament took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In bleak and hopeless times for Jerusalem, when fleeting kings plotted and and surrounded God's people, Ahaz was to stop and to behold the supernatural sign that the truly faithful sons, the holy seeds, that he might be reminded of the faithfulness of God's promise in a saving king. And likewise, in the bleak and hopeless times for ourselves, when this fleeting world surrounds us, and when Satan plots against us, you and I, we are to stop, and we are to behold the supernatural sign, the faithful son, the holy seed that we might be reminded of the faithfulness of God's promise in a saving king. For the flower that has blossomed already in this sinful world, that which is not only green in in summer's heat, but also winter's snow and sleet, is, is not the Christmas tree, but Christ. 
And our winter days are dark and drear, our hope for all the year and every year. It's not the Christmas tree, but Christ. My friends, when you're besieged by this world, when worldly people look to draw you into sinful alliances, when Satan tempts you to evil, and then to guilt and despair and, and threatens to undo God's royal promises to you, we must ask who we are trusting in ultimately. We may make time, make time to behold the fleeting plans of sinful kings and to behold the faithful plans of God's saving king. And so friends, let me ask you, uh, let me encourage you, in fact, that this very week, to, to meditate on God's plan in Christ's past, Jesus, who came to end that the reign of sin and Satan, to meditate on God's plan in Christ's present, that no matter what may besiege you in this life, that through the same seed of the Spirit that lives in us, that, that Jesus is always with you, and to the very end of this age, to meditate on God's plan in Christ's future, that the promised baby plans to come back to save you fully from this world of sin. My friends, take heart and trust not in smoldering stumps, fleeting promises of sinful kings, but trust in the supernatural seed, faithful promises for a saving king. Well, in many ways, that's my main point. For the central aim of Isaiah 7 is to get God's people thinking who they trust when they are besieged by the sinful plans of this world. The point is to get us leaning our full weight upon the Lord Jesus and the faithful promises of the saving King. But since I have you for a few more minutes, I also want us to consider the two other trees, that the two other trees that are mentioned in this section and to ask a second and a little bit more pointed question, which tree will you be? Which tree will you be? For you see, this passage reveals not only who to trust, but what happens when we trust the things that we do. Let me say that again. This passage reveals not just who to trust, but what happens when we trust the things that we do. And the first trees that we may be tempted to be are the shaking trees. The shaking trees, trusting sinful kings, leads to loss. The shaking trees, trusting sinful kings, leads to loss. In verse 2, we read that when Ahaz first realized that these worldly powers were against him, what happened? Verse 2, Ahaz shook as the trees of the forest. Ahaz was, was easily scared by the world, but having now received the sign of Emmanuel in, in verse 14, we're, we're left wondering who Ahaz might end up trusting. Will Ahaz trust and submit to, to resin and Pekah's plans, or will Ahaz now trust and submit to God's plans? Well, the interesting answer from history is actually neither. Well, turn with me to 2 Kings, chapter 16, uh, verse 7. This is the last cross-reference we'll do. 2 Kings, chapter 16, verse 7. As you turn there, you'll see the exact same account of Isaiah 7. In fact, in 2 Kings 16, verse 5, we read, Then Rezin, king of Syria, 
And Pekah, the king of Israel, waged war on Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. But then in verse 7, <coughs> we discover what Ahaz did next. Verse 7. So, but because of this worldly oppression... Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Assyria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. In the face of fleeting worldly plans to bring him down, Ahaz will not trust that the faithful plans of God to save. Ahaz will turn to trust just a different sinful king. And so we see that the, the unbelieving Ahaz not only shakes like the trees of the forest when the world buffers him, but Ahaz bends like the trees of the forest, bending in whatever direction the strongest winds of the days blow. And the strongest worldly winds of the day were not the evil kings of Syria and Israel blowing south, but the evil king of Assyria, Assyria blowing north, specifically Tiglath-Pileser III, great name, and Ahaz appeals to him. You can actually see statues of Tiglath-Pileser III in the British Museum. And when he turns to him, Ahaz says, come up and rescue me. And what happens? What happens when we trust another sinful force to, to, to save us in this world of sin? Well, well, trusting sinful kings leads to massive loss. For Ahaz not only says, come up and rescue me, but despite the fact that he was God's servant in Jerusalem and God's son in the line of David, with all the promises that went with that, he says to Tiglath-Pileser III, I am your servant and I am your son. And to prove it, Ahaz not only gives him his word, but he empties all the gold and all the silver from his temple and from his palace, and he gives him all the treasure of his religion and his respectability. And when Assyria rises up from the south, you know, they take not only that from Judah, but Judah's food, which is lost to a hungry Assyrian army, and Judah's sons, which are lost to bloody Assyrian battles, and Judah's worship, which is lost to Assyrian religion. Ahaz trusts sinful kings to save him, and he loses everything. And so, friends, will we learn from the history? Again, will we learn from the history? Will we learn what happens when those who have God's promises shake like trees in this sinful world and try to just bend with the winds of this generation. Friends, such people become not only pitiful but poor. For a failure to trust in the free promises of God it is costly in the extreme. Friends, when worldly powers threaten you, and you, rather than taking wonderful refuge in the faithful promises of God, turn to trust other sinful things to save. Don't be surprised when those things ask everything of you. Don't be surprised when they take your faith more precious than gold. When you shake like a tree and you turn to naturalism and lose the treasure of knowing that all human life is precious. 
when you shake like a tree and turn to Buddhism and lose the, the treasure of, of knowing that there is a purpose to this universe, that there is a sovereign God behind it all, when you shake like a tree and turn to trust in materialism and you lose the treasure of knowing that, the, that expensive cars and houses and clothes do not really matter, when you shake like a tree and turn to sexual immorality, and when you lose the treasure of knowing that what you do with your body matters, when you shake like a tree and turn to trust otherworldly friends, and you lose the treasure of knowing that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, that friend who will never leave you or forsake you, don't be surprised if trusting the world causes you to lose everything you once had in God. Because, friends, everything we trust to save us has a price. Everything. And everyone who feels lost in this world ends up crowning someone. As many of you know, our family used to live uh, in southwest London and in a place called Kew. And in Kew, there's this little um, royal palace. It's where Frederick, the Prince of Wales, uh, used to live in the 1700s. And in the 1700s, uh, Prince Frederick had a dog, a dog so precious to him that uh, he had the famous poet Alexander Pope create a unique dog tag for his dog. And the created dog collar for his dog read, I am His Highness's dog at Kew. Pray, sir, tell me whose dog are you? It's a very clever dog tag, isn't it? For not only reminded every reader of the tag who they had to return the dog to, and not only reminded every reader of the tag that whether they were commoners or whether they were sirs, that they were dogs in comparison to Prince Frederick, but it also reminded every reader of the tag that everyone has a king and that everyone has a master and that everybody is owned by somebody and that everyone looks for something and someone to save them when they are lost. I am His Highness's dog at Kew. Pray, sir, tell me, whose dog are you? You see, it's often tempting to think that if we trust God's promises in this world, that we will just then be just tagged by God. We'll lose all our freedoms. But if we don't trust God, well, then we'll just get to roam around freely doing whatever we like. But the truth, as Isaiah, as, as Ahaz's story reveals to us, is that in the face of sin and trial in this world, when we feel our lostness, we will all trust something to save us. And that every savior in this world requires something of us as a result. The question is not whether we shall trust something or not, but who we will trust and what the trust, what the results of that trust will be. The question for you and me is, will we be like shaking trees in the storm of this sinful world, trusting kings who will ultimately bring loss, or will we be like the standing oaks in the storm of this sinful world, trusting the king who will bring us life? That's the final point this morning. The standing oaks, trusting the saving king leads to life. The standing oaks, trusting the saving king, leads to life. As I've already said, there were some in Isaiah's day, there were some in that city who would not act like King Ahaz. For rather than verse 2, shaking at the surrounding kings of the day, they would, verse 9, come to stand firm in the faith. 
amid the siege of life, there would be a remnant people of God, a tenth, who would keep trusting in God's king and in God's plan of salvation. And as we have seen, the standing firm were described by Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 13, as oaks. Verse 13, but a tenth, a remnant shall remain, and though they go through fiery tile, these oaks shall remain standing firm, and from them shall come the holy seed. But in Isaiah 7 itself, we, we have no actual examples of those trusting oaks. Those who would trust God's messenger, those who would trust God's sign, those who would trust the plans of a saving king. But in the passage that Isaiah 7 points forward to, wonderfully, we do have an example. For in Matthew chapter 1, we meet a young man who did not know who to trust. A young man whose world was totally caving in on him. A young man who thought that his bride-to-be must now fancy another boy. A young man who could have hence easily slidden into a career in country music writing or carols about faithful Christmas trees, a young man who one day must have peeked through his college blinds and felt like shaking like a tree when he saw what was in his horizon, a young man who must have felt beset by this world and besieged by the devil's call for revenge, a young man who indeed planned to surrender to fear and to sign an alliance with the world, some divorce papers in quiet. And yet in Matthew chapter 1, we meet a young man who heard God's messenger. For just like Ahaz hearing that the prophet Isaiah, this man hears an angel of the Lord, God's messenger. And this young man receives the exact same message as Ahaz. Matthew 1, verse 20 that we read earlier. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The young man who stood like an oak of Isaiah chapter 7 from which the holy seed would come was Joseph. No doubt it would have been very easy for Joseph to trust in the received world rather than the received word, to trust the natural over the supernatural, to give in to sin over trusting the saving plans of God. But Joseph trusted God's faithfulness over the fleeting. And his trust was seen in immediate and a decisive action. At Matthew 1 verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph did name the child Jesus because Joseph trusted God's faithful plans that Jesus would, that he would save his people from their sins. And friends, Joseph's faith, like, like some great oak in the pages of history, rises up before us this morning. And his trust 
in the face of sinful worldly kings and fleeting plans and all the, the, the distractions of this world hopefully encourages us and hopefully challenges us to consider not only who we will trust, but what such trust leads to. For Joseph's trust brought him not loss, but life. He pins his trust on Jesus to save him from his sin. He pins his trust on Jesus to take him from the threatening plans of Satan in this world. And though Joseph, like us, did not see the day when that Emmanuel child saved him on the cross, when that supernatural seed was planted in the ground and yet rose from death, and so defeated Satan and this world forever, rising to give us eternal life. Joseph trusted the saving king, and he gained life. And we, just like Joseph, may gain it too, by a sweet and a simple trust in God's faithful promises for a saving king. My dear friends, when you don't know who to trust anymore, when the world besieges you, and maybe it is in particular at the moment, when Satan besets you, how sweet it is to trust the Savior King. How sweet it is to simply take God at his word and to rest upon his promises and to simply know, thus saith the Lord. Will you trust him this morning? Will you keep trusting him? For the sake, not of eternal loss, but eternal life. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, would you help us to learn from your word? Father, would you help us to learn the lessons from history? Father, would you help us to know that Though the world and, and, and though the devil may tempt us to despair often, that they are fleeting kings. Those who we have to put up with for a little while. And Father, would you help us to keep trusting your promises of your wonderful saving king in the face of whatever we are going through this day. And Father, would you help us not to shake at the world, not to give our all to this short life and what is soon passing away. Instead, may the eternal, precious gift of Emmanuel, your saving presence with us, cause us to keep trusting you for life. And may we see the sweetness of saving faith and look to cultivate it in this season in particular. Father, we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.